Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Thank you for joining us once again. Yeah, thank you for coming back to us, guys. It's Mark's week this week. So I'm very excited to hear what case you've got to tell us about. It's one that I really don't know much about at all. So I'm, again, going to be really excited to hear the story. Yeah, it is a really, really interesting story. Uh, We'll come on to it uh, in a moment. Before we get there, we'd like to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. So we have Lauren, Maxine Cordell, and also Janie Roberts and Richard Wilson, who have upgraded to the next tier. Thank you so much uh, for all of your support to you guys and also our existing patrons as well. If you would like to join them, then you can head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Don't forget to come and join us on our social media. So we've had some new listeners um, join the social, uh, the Facebook page recently um, and come on and say that they've just started listening. So that's really exciting. And I always find it crazy when people have just started listening now because I'm like, God, you've got so many episodes to catch up on. I'm always... Um... I don't know, not worried, but I'm always concerned that they're going to start right at the beginning on on the kind of shit episodes. You call them that, but they're not. We still they have are, people. Bethan, they're fucking people awful. listened to us back then and stuck with us. And I know, I can't believe you it. I'm so own grateful. It. You should yeah, okay, own I'll those fucking bad own it, whatever. Um, so um, I've wanted to cover the case featured in today's episode for quite a while, um, but technically it is unsolved. And after my recent unsolved obsession manifested itself in an absolute gluttony of frustratingly baffling cases, um, I thought I'd better not go there for fear of pissing off our listeners even more than I already have. <laughs> they, but they are getting a bit annoyed. I know, you, I know. <laughs> but whilst um, this one is technically unsolved, I'm pretty certain now that I've fully researched it that uh, we do have a clear cut suspect or culprit to pin this one on. So I'm going to basically go with it. Wow. So you've basically just done the police's job. And I've just solved it. You've yeah. solved it. Oh, well, I've not, I've not at all. No, I, <laughs> I knew the case, but I didn't know. I didn't kind of know the inside out of it. So the more I researched, the more I read that there was this one guy um, that the police believe is responsible, but they've not pressed charges for reasons that we'll come on to. Today's story takes us back to 1987 and to the largely affluent county of Buckinghamshire, home to Pinewood Studios, where they make the Bond movies, and also home to the Silverstone motor racing track. Just a few miles outside of London, Buckinghamshire was, and absolutely still is, a desirable area that attracts money. Indeed, house prices are among the highest in the country. It's a great place to live and it's littered with pretty towns and villages. And it's one such village, Stoke Poges, an historic settlement mentioned in the Doomsday Book, that takes centre stage in the first part of today's episode. Stoke Poges was home to 26-year-old Shaney Warren in 1987. Shaney lived there in a house bought for her by her affluent parents. She had two lodgers, Katie and Fiona, who were of a similar age to her, and the three got on well. Despite her parents' wealth and generosity, Shaney was an independent young woman who lived her own life. She was close to her parents, but she also had a busy social life and she was often to be seen racing around the county in her black cavalier, running errands, meeting friends or heading over to her parents' home in nearby Gerrard's Cross. Shaney was blonde with curves in all the right places the sort of woman you either wanted to be or be with. I love when you say things like that, Mark. <laughs> I have literally put that in for you, Gary, uh, one, one of our listeners. 
On the Thursday evening before the Easter Bank Holiday weekend in April 1987, Shaney met up with an old boyfriend, a man named Roger Pell, for dinner in nearby Maidenhead. Shaney had rung Roger out of the blue a few days earlier, and despite the pair having not spoken for months, they had an enjoyable evening together and agreed to meet again soon. The next day, Good Friday, Shaney was up and about early. She wanted to make the most of the bank holiday weekend and get her chores out of the way as quickly as possible so that she could enjoy the rest of the weekend. Her main task that day was to mow the lawn, but first she needed an extension lead for the mower. Shaney travelled to her parents' home in Gerrard's Cross to borrow one. Her father Joe was in, but her mother had travelled to the family flat in Bournemouth for the weekend, where Joe and Shaney were due to join her on Sunday. Shaney grabbed the extension lead and had a brief chat with her dad, but she didn't hang around. Despite it being a bank holiday, her father was working from home, and Shaney knew it would take her hours to mow the lawn. The sooner she started, the sooner she would be finished and free to enjoy herself. Shaney drove the ten minutes back to her house and spent the afternoon mowing both the back and front lawns. She'd gathered around half a dozen black bin liners full of grass cuttings, which she planned to take to the compost heap at her parents' house. Crikey, I didn't realise quite how big her house was going to be until you said how big the gardens are. I know, and the fact that it took her hours and hours, but I don't Mm. actually think it was a massive house that her parents had bought for her. It must have just had quite a big front and back lawn but it literally took her all afternoon she sounds like she's just got such an idyllic lovely life as well doesn't she she does and I, I i couldn't really find out what she did for a living but i think she did work she wasn't living off her mum and dad but they were very wealthy i think her dad had his own business and um yeah they'd bought her a house and mm. uh, but she was a really lovely girl she wasn't um wasn't like daddy's little princess like from everything I've read. No, not at all. She seemed like just this lovely, independent young woman leading the life that she wanted to lead. So, according to her lodgers, Katie and Fiona, Shaney was in a good mood that afternoon. After she'd finished mowing the lawn, the three of them hung around together, and at around 6 pm, while she was tidying her bedroom, Fiona remembers seeing Shaney out of her window, loading her car with the grass cuttings. Once she'd thrown the final bag into the boot, Shaney jumped into the driver's seat and sped off. No one knows where she was headed that evening. Despite saying she would dispose of the grass cuttings at her parents' home, Shaney drove in the opposite direction, so it's clear that she wasn't headed there. Just as Shaney's car disappeared out of the close, the house phone rang. It was her mother calling from Bournemouth to firm up plans for the weekend. She'd missed Shaney by a matter of seconds and would never get the chance to speak to her daughter again. God, that's so awful. I know, literally missed her by seconds. Wow. Just 24 hours later, Shaney's body was discovered floating face down in a lake five miles from her home. What happened in the preceding 24 hours remains somewhat of a mystery, for Shaney's killer has never been brought to justice. And I say what happened in the preceding 24 hours remains somewhat of a mystery because we do have some information on Shaney's whereabouts. There were numerous sightings of her, uh, or her car at least, that evening. And I guess it must have been quite well known in the local area and people had often seen her, so it probably is like they genuinely knew that was her car. I think so, because it was just a small village, yeah. 
50 minutes after leaving home at 6.50pm, a motorist saw a car matching the description of Shaney's black cavalier at a lay-by near to the lake where Shaney's body would go on to be discovered in just 24 hours. Although the motorist didn't see the driver, the car appeared to be in difficulty, as if it couldn't move forward. The lay-by was long, about 300 metres in length. A former section of the A4, which had since been bypassed, the lay-by was quiet and set back from the main road. As such, it was often used by courting couples or truckers who would often park up there for the night. At around 1.30am the next morning, a truck driver drove into the lay-by and saw what we now know to be Shaney's car. He dipped his headlights, thinking it was a courting couple, drove past the car and then reversed in behind it. He got out of his cab and put a padlock on the rear doors before heading home for the night. So I'm guessing he lived nearby. He was just kind of parking the truck up for the night. Yeah, you're not going to be able to put one of those on your drive, are you? No. As he walked past Shaney's car, he noticed the driver's side door wasn't shut properly. He thought this was a bit weird. There was clearly no one in the car, but it didn't seem overly suspicious to him. Later that same day, it's now 1.30pm, a couple out horse riding, I told you it was an affluent county, also spotted Shaney's car, door ajar as they rode past. Like the truck driver 12 hours before them, they thought it strange but carried on. A few hours later at 6.30pm, a full 24 hours after Shaney had left home, a woman out walking a dog discovered a body floating face down in the nearby lake, and it was of course Shaney. Shaney had been gagged, her feet loosely bound with her own tow rope, one of her own jump leads had been used to tie her hands behind her back, and the other, which was later found in the lake, had been fastened around her neck. It was very likely that Shaney had died on Good Friday evening, probably within an hour of leaving home. When police examined her car, the driver's seat was reclined back. Shaney's lighter was on the passenger seat and in the front passenger footwell were the empty grass sacks and Shaney's watch. Under the steering column was an Easter egg intended for Roger Pell, the old boyfriend with whom Shaney had had dinner on Thursday night. There had clearly been some kind of struggle in that car. Nearby in the undergrowth, officers found Shaney's credit card holder, her tow rope bag and a card addressed to Roger thanking him for that dinner. When police tried to move the car, they found that it had gearbox problems. Its shift selector had slipped and it could only be driven in third or fourth gear, making it very difficult to move forward from a stationary position. The investigation that followed got off to a bad start when one of the officers involved in the inquiry publicly declared that Shaney had most likely ended her own life. What? That's actually ridiculous. (gasps) Isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely crazy, considering that she was bound and gagged and they had proof that she'd been strangled as well. um, It just beggars belief. But that is basically what the pathologist concluded initially. And there was subsequently quite a lot of shade thrown over that guy um, and his, his credibility. Yeah, but in the very early days of the investigation, because of his findings, precious time was lost. So instead of looking for Shane's murderer, officers were doing nothing because they just believed this to be some kind of bizarre suicide. Despite the shaky start, a number of witnesses did come forward and an appeal was made on Crime Watch, which is where I first came across this case a few months ago. A passing motorist said they had seen a broken down car, a black saloon, 
a couple of hundred yards further up the lay-by and they said that a man was looking under the bonnet but ultimately the whole investigation into Shaney's now murder hit one dead end after another and despite periodic appeals for information in the media the inquiry was eventually wound up although officially it did remain open. Shaney left behind a devastated mother and father and two siblings as well as numerous friends and of course Roger Pell, the old boyfriend she had felt compelled to see again just days before her untimely death. For all we know, had Shaney not been murdered, the two of them would have got married and gone on to live a life of domestic bliss in middle class suburbia. So as I said at the beginning of the episode, Shaney's killer has sadly never been brought to book, but there is one man whose name is written all over this. But before we get into all of that, let's have a word from this week's show sponsor. So we left our story with the tragic discovery of 26-year-old Shaney Warren's body in a lake in Buckinghamshire in 1987. Shaney had been brutally murdered and her killer has never faced justice. But as I said, there is one man whose name is written all over this. So let's head back a few more years, this time to 1982 and north to Bradford, a large city in West Yorkshire. On a cold and foggy December night, a woman was sat in her car in a car park on some derelict land on the outskirts of the city when she was apprehended by a scruffy looking man. The woman, who we'll call Anne, was viciously raped and beaten and despite reporting her attack to the police straight away, no suspect was apprehended. A few weeks later, on the 3rd of January in 1983, a 26-year-old woman who we'll call Becky was sat in her car at the Leeds Royal Infirmary car park just a few miles away from Bradford. As she put her key into the ignition, a man came out of nowhere, opened the door and asked her if this was her car. Before she could answer, the man had pushed his way into the car and shoved Becky across and onto the passenger seat. Promising not to hurt her, the man said he needed to borrow her car for 10 minutes because he needed to get to Pudsey. Becky so desperately wanted to believe that he was telling the truth, that he wouldn't hurt her. But deep down, she knew that this was not going to end well. The man drove off with Becky to a quiet area on the outskirts of the city. He threatened to shoot her in the back of her head before violently raping her. When the man had finished with her, he gagged Becky and bound her ankles and wrists with electrical cable. He then pulled a cloth bag over her head and drove her to the Leeds and Liverpool Canal. The man dragged her out of the car and along the canal towpath. It was freezing cold. With Becky's face covered by the cloth bag, rendering her temporarily blind, her other senses became heightened. She could smell the stagnant water of the canal and hear the rustling of gravel beneath her feet. She was shaking and hunched over. The man came to an abrupt stop and pulled Becky up to her feet so that she was standing fully upright now. She was completely disorientated and she couldn't see anything. Stood there for a brief second, Becky felt as if she was balancing precariously and wondered what the man would do next. She truly feared for her life, she wanted her mum. The gag stifled her screams and before she could attempt to get her breath, she was thrust violently into the canal. Oh my god, that is absolutely terrifying. Isn't it? Absolutely. Even if you knew that it was going to happen, you would be scared shitless. But I think to not really know... 
to no. be blindfolded is just horrific. Oh my god, that's really reminding me of like the potential when we talked about the Manchester pus- pusher because obviously those were the canal. The Manchester pussy. <laughs> oh my god, I said that weird pusher, pusher, pusher. Um, but we're also, if it is true, what a pussy. Um, but yeah, like that is so terrifying, and that water would have been so dark and freezing and like dirty and oh and i also think that she she could smell it and um she lived near there so she would be familiar with the canal network and i wonder in at some deep level whether she actually knew what was going to happen um subconsciously yeah um and we will talk a little bit actually about the manchester pusher episode <laughs> in the moment because uh, it absolutely reminded me of that yeah so becky plummeted into the ice cold water and felt her feet hit the rocky surface below She was fully submerged, bound and gagged, and about to give in to the seductive power of the water when her survival instinct took over. She managed to untangle her ankles and swim to the other side of the canal. Feeling a ledge beneath her feet as she got to the other side, she stood on it and managed to stabilise herself. With her chin now above water, she freed her hands and took the soaking wet cloth bag off of her face. When she looked up, her attacker was stood there. On the other side oh of the canal, calmly watching her. I what know. What absolute freak, Jesus. Absolute bastard. He'd been stood there all along watching Becky fight for her life. But she knew actually that she was safe now because even if this man got into the water after her, she knew that she had enough time to scramble to the grass verge and run for her life. And in any case, he just stood there anyway. God, what a horrible thing to see as well. Isn't it? Oh. For her, can you imagine just looking up and him towering over? And a canal is not that wide, is it really? As the man walked away, Becky made her way onto the grassy bank and then onto Globe Road where she managed to flag down a passing driver. Now, if this was my favourite horror film, Eden Lake, then that passing driver would have been Becky's Oh my God, yeah. If this was a novel or something... Honestly, Jesus. thank God it wasn't Eden Lake because the passing motorist was actually a genuine hero who saved Becky that night. And um, we touched on it already, uh, but before we continue, obviously we did mention the Canal Network quite a lot in the Manchester Pussy episodes. Um, and there's just something about a canal that adds an extra layer of horror for me when they are mentioned in connection with a crime like this. Yeah, I completely agree. I just think it's I think it's because it's so industrial. I don't know what that does for me but for some reason that makes it seem more chilling and gross and horrible it could be yeah the attacker always seems to push their victim in and then just fucking stand there looking all calm don't they they don't ever push them in and just run off they have to go full-on psychopath and i think that's what always bothers me that the fact that they just watch them powerlessly struggle for their life do you remember that one where the guy like fell in and then as he was scrubbing? I know what you're going to say, don't. Yeah, yeah, stomping on his fingers. Well, it wasn't even, I don't even think he stomped on them. He just, the guy who had been pushed into the canal was obviously had his fingertips on the ledge to pull himself out. And I think the pusher just kind of stepped on them and crushed his foot down in a really calm, methodical way. Uh, that was That was really disturbing, wasn't it? Those episodes that you did were just brilliant, the Manchester pusher. I really enjoyed researching those and trying to see just because it's such an unknown, like, is there a link, is there not? And it was so intriguing. I think it will go down in, in legend for, for us true crime people. Um, yeah, fans of true is it crime. or isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. it will be one of those. Eventually, it will be like an urban myth. Mm. 
Anyway, a few days after Becky's attack, her credit card was used in nearby Huddersfield to purchase a number of random items. A Parker pen, some women's designer clothes, a child's computer game and some items from the parent and baby superstore, Mothercare. Some clues perhaps to the culprit. Were these items gifts or was Becky's attacker going round playing computer games dressed as a woman wielding a Parker pen in Mothercare? <laughs> I, I love know. the idea of that. It's That's possible. Hilarious. He's a complete nutter, so it could be. West Yorkshire police quickly realised that these two attacks, so on Becky and Anne, uh, were linked and they set up an incident room to catch this sadistic rapist. Detectives ran an extensive inquiry. They knocked on over 14,000 doors, but ultimately they didn't get anywhere. Following the rapes of Anne and Becky, police had gathered numerous swabs, body hairs and other evidence, but when they failed to find the culprit, and even though they knew it was highly likely that a serial rapist was still at large and likely to attack again, they still pretty much gave up on that investigation. In May 1984, some 16 months later, a 20-year-old woman was parking her car in Leicester when a man ambushed her. The woman, who we'll call Carol, was driven to a remote area where she was slashed across her breasts and torso before being brutally raped. Her attacker left a black and red shoelace in her car. It was a clue, but it wasn't enough. And once again, this violent rapist had gotten away with his heinous crime. 18 months passed and on November the 15th in 1985, a 20-year-old woman who was parking her car in Doncaster was raped. South Yorkshire police made no link between this attack and the other offences, they made no progress with the inquiry and they even lost or destroyed every single piece of evidence and paperwork from this case. That's ridiculous, every single, like one bit, oh it's an accident, that's ridiculous. I mean I suppose all I would say is that is 35 years ago and although that is completely unacceptable that would have been before they had computerised cataloguing systems. and. But you still got to lose a whole box of handwritten statements and stuff. I just, um, that's frustrating, isn't it? Yeah. On January the 7th in 1990, a woman was getting out of her car in a Leeds car park when she was attacked. This woman managed to fight her attacker off and she then reported the incident to the police. She gave a description and told them that the man had a knife. She said she was certain that he was actually trying to abduct her. West Yorkshire police failed to find the culprit and recorded the attack as an attempted robbery. No links were made to the other attacks, which followed a similar MO, so that's really disappointing. Four months later, this time in Nottingham, a woman was abducted and raped. After her attacker had finished with her, he attempted to burn her to death as she cowered in her car. Fortunately, the fire failed to ignite and she was saved, but can you imagine that? She'd gone through a horrific ordeal, she'd been raped and brutalised. She was then essentially locked in a car, panic-stricken, whilst her attacker was clearly trying to set it on fire. That is absolutely terrifying. A few years later, in May 1993, a woman drove into a multi-storey car park in Nottingham. As the woman, who we'll call Debbie, drove down a ramp towards the basement level of the car park, a man walked in front of her car. He stopped and looked her straight in the eyes. She braked and waited for him to move on, which he did after a couple of awkward seconds. After parking her car, Debbie turned the ignition off and gasped when the same man pulled open her door. 
Brandishing a knife, he demanded she remain silent or he would stick the blade straight through her. Those were his exact words. The man pushed Debbie into the passenger footwell before throwing her coat over her and driving off at speed. A few seconds into the journey, the man asked her if she was religious and when she told him that she was Catholic, he responded by saying, then you'd better start praying. Although Debbie couldn't see anything, she could hear a rattle coming from the steering wheel, which usually happened when the car hit 70 miles an hour. As the man drove, he emptied her bag onto the front passenger seat, bemoaning the fact that she had little cash or valuables on her. After parking up in a deserted area, the man raped her. When he finished, he bound her naked limbs together and threw her into the footwell of the car before driving to another rural spot where he took off the petrol cap before trying to torch the car. He failed once again and abandoned the car, as he had done with Carol, and he then left Debbie crying inside. God, so he's starting to try and like almost have a bit of a pattern here. It's really started to escalate, yeah. Hmm. So Debbie reported her attack to police and described the man as white, mid to late 30s, thin with collar length, dirty blonde hair, which was slightly receding. She helped detectives to produce a photo fit and forensic scientists were able to obtain DNA evidence. But once again, this serial rapist had gotten away with his crime. What always shocks me with cases from around this time or earlier is how long serial attackers in you know in different ways rapists murderers how long they would continue on for whereas nowadays we've got so much more cctv yeah people have got their phones on them all the time things like that you just don't see this happening to this extent and i i always when i hear cases like this i think i am so grateful that whilst it can be really rubbish living in this era and we've got so much technology and and life is almost a lot more disconnected, actually, we are probably a lot safer in this aspect. Yeah, I think so. I think people criticise the amount of CCTV in this country, and I can see the arguments for and against it. But I think from a safety perspective, it, it does make a huge difference. And we see it featured in so many crimes, in the, in the solving of so many crimes. And when we when we hop back to the 80s or even the early 90s, um, it's just I find it weird that there is no CCTV then. And it does make the police's job much harder. And, and you're right. This guy uh, carried on offending actually for 16 years in total. What? Um, oh, my God. Which is just crazy, isn't it? Um, and I think having the homes database that the police use to put a lot of their information in so they can quickly find uh, culprits with the same MO or the same description, that makes their job a lot easier now. But I don't think that was uh, in place back then. Two years later, in 1995, and once again in Leeds, a young woman got into her car at the multi-storey car park on Woodhouse Lane. It was a hot day and the car was quite warm, so the woman, who we'll call Emma, opened the driver's door to let in some air for a couple of minutes. As she cooled down, she saw a man in her peripheral vision, but before she could pull him into focus, he had leapt around to her door and barged his way into her car. He told her to close her eyes and then proceeded to put super glue on them. Oh my god, what? I know, honestly. <gasps> Isn't that just something that somebody who absolutely hates women would do? Yeah. He then drove Emma to the outskirts of the city where he sexually assaulted her. 
So in all of the reports I've read of Emma's attack, it was described as sexual assault and not rape. So I, I, I don't know if actually she was raped and, and years ago that's how some people may have referred to it. Um, or it could be that it, it was sexual assault and not rape. After driving Emma to the Leeds Canal on Globe Road where 12 years previously had tried to kill someone, the attacker eventually got out of the car and ran off. Emma sounded the car's horn and a motorist pulled over and rescued her, but by now it was clear that this callous and cruel man was becoming more and more violent with each attack. Fortunately, police had finally linked all of these crimes. In the two years since the 1995 attack on Emma, the Leicestershire, Nottinghamshire and West Yorkshire police forces had joined forces to catch this culprit in an operation code named Lynx. In 1997, they appealed for information on Crime Watch, where they said they believed the attacker was a serial offender. They said numerous attacks or attempted attacks may not have been reported to police, and they asked any victims or potential victims that hadn't already come forward to do so. Crime Watch reconstructed a number of these attacks, and the detective leading the investigation said that he believed the man to be a well-known thief as well as a sex attacker, and he revealed that he may have had a wife and an ex-wife based on some of the things that he'd said to some of his victims. The detective said he would have been a dominant man in his behaviour towards those ex-partners or current partners and that he would have been aggressive and that he may have raped and abused them and the detective really appealed for those women to come forward and contact him. Officers had managed to obtain a blood sample and also a partial fingerprint following their analysis of the various crime scenes. Offender profiles suggested they were likely to be dealing with a known sex offender. The pattern of offences suggested that he was linked to Leeds. They took saliva samples for DNA comparison from over 2,000 suspects, but unfortunately, they drew a blank. They then ran the fingerprint through the automatic fingerprint recognition system, but it was a long shot because it was only a partial fingerprint. This yielded no results. Detectives decided to order a manual search of the fingerprint database, an ambitious and very time-consuming exercise. To narrow the field, they turned once again to offender profilers and hit a new problem. Possibly inspired by the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry where the entire hunt had been pushed off course by misleading tapes and letters, the rapist in this case had deliberately left false clues as to his background. For example, when speaking to his victims, he spoke in a strong Scottish accent, which was subsequently proved to be false. Wow, what an absolute... Like, already he's an absolute arsehole, but then he's doing stuff like this that is even more calculating. That is really calculated. And he would also... He would use Scottish colloquial terms like lassie to further... Uh, belie this Scottish persona so they would all say when they went to report this to the police that it was a Scottish man. I wonder if that shoelace that was a clue but nothing came of it I wonder if he planted that there. Yeah absolutely could have been that's a really good point I didn't think of that. So this inquiry was huge it involved 180 officers from five forces in total. Apart from the over 2,000 suspects whose saliva was tested, a further 9,945 were checked and excluded. 
Detectives raised over 24,000 actions and entered 33,000 names onto their computer system, more than any other inquiry in British policing history. So That is incredible. It really is, isn't it? I think the investigation, despite its initial um, failings, really came into its own in in the early to mid-90s. I think as well, like when you're saying about they did um, the... I can't remember, I can't think of the right word, but rather than using like the automatic fingerprint thing, but then doing the manual one. I mean, I've seen footage of people doing that and they're literally having one in front of their face and then looking at the other one and and literally looking to see if they look the same. Like, wow, that must be exhausting. Can you imagine that level of concentration that's required to do that? And actually, it was that task that yielded the ultimate result. So on March the 19th in 1998, after 940 hours of sifting through more than 7,000 fingerprints, a special constable in Leeds came up with a name, Clive Barwell. This man was then arrested the next day. What an incredible thing to know that in your career you've done something like that. And for a special constable as well. Um, So that's a a member of the public who is volunteering in their own time to assist the police. That's amazing. So Clive Barwell turned out to be a very ordinary man. If there were any clues to his disposition, then they lay in his childhood. His father reportedly beat his mother in front of Barwell and he recruited Barwell at the age of 12 to keep guard on his mother uh, to stop her from kind of moving or leaving. And eventually she left the family home and she took his siblings with her. But very tellingly, I think she left Clive behind with his father. Gosh, that's a crazy, crazy childhood. Yeah. So Clive Barwell had been married three times and although he had shown some signs of violence, none of his wives had suspected his true nature. Um, But I think him witnessing the brutal attacks on his own mother as a child had obviously done so much damage to him and the the way that he viewed women. So um, I'm really surprised that he hadn't brutalized the women that were later in his life that he was close to i'm surprised that he went out and and did that to strangers and and not just uh, to to those close to him so Mm. it's unusual as detectives had predicted barwell was a thief as well as a prolific sex attacker and rapist in november 1987 he was arrested for using a sawn-off shotgun to rob a number of security vans and also for stealing a number of cars to order, including 16 from one car park in York on a single day. And he was, he would steal them to order. He was quite well known for that and, and very good at it as well. I mean, that is pretty good at stealing, 16 from one car park. In one day, yeah. Yeah. On January the 13th in 1989, Barwell was sent to prison for 16 years. Already responsible for a number of rapes by this time, police didn't suspect him to be a serial rapist or a rapist at all, but they had at least locked him up where he could do no more harm to women. Or could he? Within three and a half years of going to prison, Barwell was able to rape again from within prison when he was released on leave for up to four days at a time. So he he was basically a model prisoner, an absolute psychopath and and would just mould into the the perfect character that the governors and the officers wanted him to be. So very quickly his uh, prisoner status was downgraded considerably and eventually he was moved to an open prison 
He was able to go out and work within the community. He was able to meet another woman who he later married. And he was even running a pub at one point. Um, all the while, oh whilst technically in prison. Isn't that yeah, just mad? Yeah, that's absolutely ridiculous. It really is. It really is. He was properly released from prison in June 1995. And just five weeks later, he went on to sexually assault Emma in that car park in Leeds. She was the victim whose eyes he glued shut with superglue, which is beyond cruel, isn't it? It's just horrendous. So basically, if ever there was a reason to ensure prisoners are not given day release, surely this is the textbook example. Yeah, but the thing is, is he was in prison for stealing cars. So they wouldn't have known. They wouldn't have known that he was also doing that. But I know what you mean. It's it's crazy. Yeah, because I mean, he was in prison from essentially he was in prison from 87. He was held on remand until his trial in 89. And then he was held really technically in prison until 95. But during that time, he managed to commit at least one rape and one sex attack and and quite possibly and probably many, many more. And of course, going back to the very beginning where we started with Shaney Warren, uh, we know that she was sexually assaulted and murdered just six months before Barwell was arrested and remanded in custody for armed robbery. And I think it's really interesting that she lived in Buckinghamshire because the majority of Barwell's crimes were committed in the north of England. But from 1985, Barwell was working as a lorry driver and it's absolutely possible that his work took him all over the country. And in fact, I did read one article which put him in the Buckinghamshire area at the time of Shaney's murder. Um, It stated that he was delivering car parts to a factory there, but I wasn't really able to verify it. um, So I'm not fully sure. And it was almost like um, uh, a blog that somebody had written about Shaney's unsolved murder. Mm. So, So I don't know how possible that was, but he was a lorry driver. It's so difficult, isn't it? Because whereas the police potentially might have been able to find stuff out as a normal person, you're never going to be able to to narrow that right down. But it's interesting that anybody had a link that they believed. So that's really cool. Yeah. What we do know is that Barwell was often relatively unprepared for his attacks. So despite there being that level of premeditation that he would go out to attack, he would often use his victim's clothes and accessories to tie them up. Shaney's arms and legs were bound together with her own tow rope and jump leads. He also often used his victim's personal belongings to inflict pain on them. So, of course, with Emma, the woman whose eyes were superglued shut, that was her own superglue that Barwell just happened to come across in her car. Shaney was strangled with her own jump lead. So, again, he'd, if he was responsible for Shaney's murder, he'd not come fully prepared for that. Shaney was also lightly murdered at that lay-by where she parked her car and it was a lay-by that was often used by lorry drivers and of course we know that Barwell was a lorry driver at that time. Detectives are convinced that he was responsible or is responsible for Shaney Warren's murder and he's currently serving I think it's four life sentences so maybe they just don't see the need to prosecute him for Shaney's murder. Um, Maybe there just wasn't enough concrete evidence to pursue the prosecution there. Yeah, and he's away now, isn't he? So what's Exactly. We we see it from time to time, don't we, where it's glaringly obvious, but they decide to not pursue the charges. Sometimes they'll leave them on file. Um, 
but I don't really know the ins and outs here of, of what happened. Ultimately, Shaney's murder is unsolved and they've not said that it's definitely Barwell. They've just said that it's highly probable that it was him, mm-hmm. but that they're not going to pursue uh, anybody in, anybody else in connection with it or him. So I believe on that fateful evening in April 1987 that Shaney had pulled into the lay-by to dump the grass cuttings. It could be that she'd broken down because we did have that witness who saw a car matching the description of her black cavalier struggling to move forward. So it could be that she'd broken down and pulled in. Because the gear box had like an issue, didn't it, when it yeah, was found? Yeah, so you- you know what it's like when you're trying to start your car in third gear instead of first. It's mm. really difficult to get it moving. Especially a car in the 80s. Oh, God, yeah, they yeah. were shit. So it could be that she'd broken down. It could be that she was dumping the grass cuttings for whatever reason. She'd decided not to take them to her parents' home. Who knows? Um, maybe she was on the way to see her old boyfriend, Roger Pell, or maybe she was on her way to meet somebody else. We don't know. But the grass cuttings were gone. They were just empty black plastic bags that had been moved from the boots. Uh, the, the grass cuttings had been emptied from them and then those empty bags had been put in the passenger, the front passenger footwell. Um, so I think she'd, she'd definitely dumped them at the lay-by. Maybe she'd broken down and thought, while I'm here, I'll dump them. I don't know. Um, or maybe she'd just pulled over and dumped them. And maybe there wasn't really a problem with her car. Maybe she knew how to start it, but... Barwell didn't. Um, we don't really know. And I think as well, the fact that there was an Easter egg for Roger and a card that said thank you for the other evening, and she's due to be going to Bournemouth. It was Bournemouth, wasn't it, with her parents? Yeah, that's true. I yeah. do kind of think that, yeah, perhaps she was just going to either drop them round at Roger's or or see him, but maybe she hadn't made actual concrete plans. Maybe it was just a, oh, I'll quickly drop these round before I head over. Um, and then, yeah, she'd be like, oh, shit, I've got those grass cuttings in the boot. Let's just quickly dump them now because I forgot that I was supposed to take them. Like, you, yeah. do, I don't know, just, she just seems like she would just be a nice, like the fact that she'd even done a thank you card and stuff, I, know, I love her. I know. So, yeah, maybe she'd then be like, oh, I really don't want to drive around with them, so I'll just quickly dump them. Yeah. To know. And I mean, I, I've got to say, I, I don't think anybody would really be holding Roger Pell in any kind of suspicious uh, No, thought. I doubt that. No, but but he was completely ruled out. He was never treated as mm-hmm. a suspect. Um, and I, I never thought that, that, that he would have been. Um, but yeah, I, I think, assumed because you hadn't mentioned him anymore. I was like, it's probably the case. But yeah, I wanted to good. kind of drop drop him in relatively early on as a bit of a red herring for people to, to maybe <laughs> take him down that path, Ooh. which is a bit cruel on Roger. I'm sorry, Roger, if you're listening, but um, he is innocent. So um, what I think happened actually is that Barwell was probably already parked up in the lay-by, possibly planning an attack, possibly not. Maybe it was just opportunistic, but I think he seized his moment and ambushed Shaney as she was getting back into her car once she'd emptied those grass cuttings. And I think he raped her in the car. I think that's why the front seat was reclined. I think he then strangled her. I don't think anybody was around at that point. It would have been getting dark. I then think he carried her body to the lake where he dumped her. Um, I think a lot of that makes sense. The fact that he was a lorry driver, we've got reports that he was in Buckinghamshire at that time. Uh, It's highly probable that he'd pulled into that lay-by for the night and was thinking, I'm going to seize a moment if it presents itself. And there, there, Shaney, this gorgeous blonde 26-year-old woman. It's getting dark. She's preoccupied dumping grass in 
the lay-by and this is quite a remote lay-by not not overlooked really by a main road and I, th- I think he just couldn't resist and I think he he absolutely raped her maybe Shaney put up a really strong fight and he had no choice in his head but to silence her in the only way that he knew how um, and strangled her so um of course, that's only my theory. We'll never know exactly what happened to Shaney, but it is at least very likely that Barwell was responsible. My only thinking with this, and I think with everything else, he seems like definitely the person to think was responsible. But surely, if he's then escalated and has taken a life, would he not then continue to kill his victims? Or did he then think, Do you know what, I came too close to being caught, so... I won't kill, but I don't know. I just feel like once you've done that and you've gone past a certain point, would you ever really go back to uh, the, it's, I don't know how to put it, but like the lesser crime? Mm. Um, because he's then experienced that side of things as well. That's my I, only little takeaway from it. But I, I totally get that. I really understand what you're saying. My only thoughts on it are that he was always a rapist and that was that was what he was about. And I, I wonder with Shaney if it just got out of hand and yeah, he true. had no choice but to kill her. Um, and even for him, he overstepped the mark. Or or something else happened and, and he had to do that because he did eventually start to escalate in his crimes um, in the mid-90s when he attempted to burn his victims to death in their own cars, which he would have absolutely done had he been able to ignite the fire. So maybe they had got too much of a, a look at him and would have been able to describe him. Um, maybe they they triggered him in some way and used some kind of language um, that that really just pushed him over over the edge. I don't know. They could have maybe looked too much like his mum or something as well. Yeah. Because if that was a major trigger from his childhood. But but I don't think he ever got off on killing people or attempting to kill them. I think that was um, it was always about rape and control for him. And sometimes he had no choice but to kill uh, the victim because he, he equally he would have killed the victim that he threw into the canal. She she could have easily died. So I don't know. Maybe he just wasn't a very good killer. Um, I don't know, but I, I'm pretty convinced that he was responsible for Shaney's murder. Yeah, it just fits, doesn't it? Yeah, the only uh, alarm bell really is that he his patch was up north around Leeds, Yorkshire, um, Nottinghamshire, Leicestershire, and Buckinghamshire is really out of the way. But yeah, he was a lorry driver. We don't know about where he worked for sure, but it is highly likely that he would have worked around the country. And as I say, there, there is talk that he was in Buckinghamshire at that time. So um, please do get in touch with your thoughts on it. You know where we stand. We'd love to know uh, what you think about it. You can get in touch with us in all of the usual ways. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can find us on YouTube and of course, Patreon as well. Thank you so much for joining us this week and thank you, Mark, for such an interesting case. Thank you. We will see you again next week. See you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.